In September earlier this year, many of us received a video depicting a violent murder. I am now going to describe that violence to you in some detail for reasons that I will explain, but if you want to avoid this description, you can skip the next two minutes of this episode. The video begins with at least seven men in uniform and protective riot gear. Nearly all of them have guns and some are firing at a target to the right of the frame that we cannot yet see. The camera then pans to reveal their target. A man running towards, yes, towards the gunfire. His only weapon, a long stick. First, the bullets fell in. And then we can no longer see him because at this point, at least 10 uniformed men surround him, their metal-tipped rods aloft. They beat him repeatedly. Gunfire continues. Then as they disperse, leaving the man lying motionless on the ground, something happens. We are now about 25 seconds into the video and start to notice another man who has entered the frame or may have been within it all along. He is not in uniform and is small in comparison. Wrapped around his face is a gamosa, the rectangular piece of white cloth with red woven motifs that is considered traditional to Assam. He was also carrying a camera. He leaps into the air and lands on the fallen man's chest and neck. The violence was shocking. Many who saw the video were forced to reflect on what could make one man hate a stranger enough to act in this fashion. The uniformed men in the video, however, remained nonchalant in the moment. For some who saw this video, it was this dissonance that struck home. Later, we learned that the man lying dead on the ground was 33-year-old Moinul Haq. The residents of his village in Darang district of Assam, mostly Bengali-speaking Muslims, had been served an eviction notice the previous night. The attacker's name was Bijoy Banya. He had been employed by the Darang district administration to take pictures of this eviction drive. On this podcast, we learn together to become better at public life. On previous episodes, we have learned, for example, about the global campaign that delivered significantly cheaper medicines during the AIDS crisis, about how a small group of committed activists maintained the global boycott of South African sport during the apartheid years, and about how some remarkable lawyers are providing legal services to the survivors of communal violence in India. The Nagrik podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. All you have to do is to go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean or Google Podcasts 
and search for the Nagrik podcast. When you find our feed, you will find the older episodes as well. Subscribe to the feed to know when we release a new episode. The viral video that I spoke about previously became another landmark in a long history of ethnic contestation over land in Assam, which shares a 163 mile border with Bangladesh. Over the years, as the region went through several tumults, including the partition of Bengal in 1905, the partition of India in 1947, and the genocide in East Pakistan followed by the independence of Bangladesh in 1971, the narrative took root that indigenous Assamese were losing their land to migrants from Bangladesh. It became the political foundation for the Assam movement during the early 1980s, the creation of a legal procedure to detect illegal immigrants and expel them from the state of Assam, and later the creation of a national register of citizens for Assam and associated tribunals with the power to determine the validity of a person's citizenship. The BJP came to power in the state in 2016 and intensified efforts to weed out so-called illegal immigrants. These efforts have disproportionately affected the Muslims of the state. According to government data, nearly 87,000 people were declared foreigners in Assam between 2015 and 2020. As of April 2021, 1,36,173 cases were pending in the foreigners tribunals. All of this is background to this episode of the Nagrik podcast because it is the background in which our guest today practices law. I've always had an abiding interest in the public spirited practice of law and I'm always eager to meet the lawyers at the front lines of what has for decades been a full-blown justice crisis in many parts of the world. Simply put, the people who most urgently need legal services, such as the people whose citizenship has been questioned in the foreigners tribunals of Assam, are simply not able to access them. Aman Vadud is in his early 30s and as a co-founder of the Justice and Liberty Initiative, he provides these services pro bono or free of charge. When I caught up with him, Aman was at the University of Texas in Austin where he is completing a master's degree in law as a Fulbright Fellow. It wasn't long before I discovered that we shared an interest in cricket. See, I mean, uh, if you see that the facilities actually, I think, you know, talents are there everywhere. If you go to villages, wherever it may be, anywhere in Assam, people love playing cricket. I think that that goes, you know, for every state in India, even in today, you will see in, in Manipur, in Iz, uh, uh, you know, Mizoram, people plays cricket, which is football dominating state, basically. But, you know, there is a lot of uh, enthusiasm for cricket, even those states where, you know, football dominates. When it comes to Assam, when it comes to me, I mean, I have 
grown up playing cricket my my childhood was all about cricket and nothing else actually not not even about studies so only before my matriculation i i i, I became little serious with my studies but before that i always wanted to become a cricketer but the problem is that again you know i i uh, lived in a place which was completely cut off from the entire world you know 5 6 month of the year we used to go by you know boat by cycle of course cycle only i mean i had uh, you know there was no vehicles then uh, no electricity i you know till my 17 years of my first life i didn't study one letter in under a electric bulb so those were the in rural conditions where we played cricket so from there uh and 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 an entire village and i became very passionate when you talk about cricket <laughs> so in the entire village there was only one television two actually but one was accessible to us and we always used to you know sit and watch cricket you know day night match we used to sit late night and watch cricket so that enthusiasm was was always there for cricket i think cricket is like a religion and it's it's not a new phenomenon it's going on since you know last maybe after 83 world cup you know it has become a phenomenon in india and every children every child they you know want to grow up uh, most of the child actually want to grow up uh, and become a cricketer that was the dream i had uh, but then we had no facilities why i'm giving you background of my area is because there was no stadium nothing it was just you know your passion uh and then you know when i came to guwahati i became a little busy with the studies and all and things were not very structured uh, if it would it would have been structured maybe i would have been maybe i would have been doing something else because i was very passionate about the game and uh, i think i i you know i played not very bad i mean i was an average all rounder but i could have honed my skill if 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 i would have gotten better facilities coach um, and everything uh so yeah this is, is one thing apart from i became passionate about my constitution uh, human rights my dignity uh, later in my life uh, in the sense you know after i became a lawyer or when i was studying law actually when i was in bangalore then i started reading a lot uh, i used to go to gangaram and you know uh, every 15 days you know saturday sunday uh, either day i used to go to gangaram and that's how i i, I took uh, keen interest in books in in ideas and that became my second passion but my first passion was was cricket and it's still cricket i still you know keep following ranjit trophy scores and all uh you know espn cricket info so wherever whatever match goes on i just see scoreboard so wherever i am so that that really keeps you know uh, interest me a lot apart from the work that i think when it comes to an interest for the game i don't think uh, the two of us are very different Uh, but i don't think we can spend this whole interview talking about cricket as much as i would like to so can you tell me a bit more about the the area in which you grew up why was why why did you say it was isolated from the rest of the world and what were the circumstances in which you moved to guwahati so it was isolated because uh, it was cut off actually cut off when i say isolated i mean it was cut off you know there was no road there were no roads actually it is it is a shame when i used to hear i used to read that you know lal bahadur shastri used to swim to his school he had no roads village and those were the things we used to read in school uh, but we did not reflect that <laughs> that is the same kind of things we were doing like maybe 100 years later and i am talking about i grew up in 90s uh, i passed my matric in 2002 so before that we had no electricity uh, at our home 
and I used to read in kerosene lamp. Uh, so that was the conditions, that was the environment where I grew up. But it was, of course, and for everyone, high school, uh, childhood is the happiest time. Uh, but for me, I mean, now people, I mean, here I see, or generally people cycles a lot, you know, as an exercise. I used to cycle because I had to cycle to my school. <laughs> so everything was so natural. And uh, of course, cricket was there and uh, everything was so fun um, in, in, in village, despite we had no access to everything. And, and I think having access to things have also created a lot of problem. Uh, particularly like mobile phone you know I'm very privileged that I grew up in a time when there was no mobile phone today if I see I feel really sad you know kids are their lives are getting destroyed because of mobile phone I'm not saying this is a bad thing but if you become obsessed with it addicted with it this is very bad actually I have seen people literally you know losing their life because of you know getting addicted to mobile phone uh, and then you know riding bikes in high speed and and getting killed so you know those were the time you grew up uh, and my father used to bring bring me books so i was really you know that was a very privileged time i guess i my nephews one is 13 one is seven you know they are also addicted to phone but uh, in a good way i mean you know they're very smart smart kid they goes to best school in Guwahati. Uh, but in a good but I still think you know they are they are too much involved in phone and when you get too much involved in phone you become very anxious you become very restless even today you know I'm telling this to everyone don't spend much time on phone I am trying to reduce my you know time uh, you know of using phone because it, it makes you very restless um, I, I have seen there are people who are talking about that you know two hours or three hours before sleep don't touch your phone I think that is a very good thing and I really feel privileged that I grew up in a time when there was no mobile phone. So <clears throat> my father used to, was a professor in Cotton College. And he brought me to Don Bosco in Guwahati uh, when I was five or four or five. But I did not get admission. So when he was going back to my village, which is 80 kilometers away from Guwahati. So someone told me that, uh, someone told my father, where are you coming from? Where did you take your son to? Uh, generally, you know, my father comes from Guwahati. Everyone knows he used to cycle to uh, highway and get a bus. But that day he, I was with him. Someone asked me, where did you take your son to? He said, no, I went to, we went to Don Bosco in Guwahati. He did not get admission. So, so that person told that, why not, you know, establish an English medium school here? Because he wanted English school, you know, English education for me. So that became a reason, you know, to establish an English medium school in such backward areas. And that was one of the first English medium school in Assam in Muslim dominated areas, actually. And uh, my father, grandfather was a peer. He was a religious guru. And people actually complained to my grandfather that, you know, <laughs> his grandson will become Christian. And his father, my father is also, a, you know, a scholar in Arabic, that he should not come up with an English medium school. This is in 1991. But my grandfather was a very forward-looking person. He said, whatever my son is doing is, is, is doing a good thing. And today we see a lot of students from that school, you know, coming out, doing great in life. So when, you know, it was still class 10, my father used to stay in Guwahati. I used to stay in my village with my mother. But later my mother also shifted. I used to stay in my grandparents. Uh, so after matric class 10th, I had to shift to Guwahati. So that is when I shifted to Guwahati. Uh, after completing my high school in, in, in my village, that school is going on really well now. I mean, I'm really happy that it, it is. A lot of people are getting education from that school. What kind of uh, books were you reading at that time? What kind of books did, you, did your father encourage you to read? And what was your the nature of your 
you know, along with your uh, school education, you must have received some kind of religious instruction as well. So how did all this kind of combine into, you know, the kind of reading that you were doing? Uh, no, my father used to bring me children's book. I remember one book I, I you know, I, all my friends took and it, it was called Knowledge Power. It was a huge, you know, this, uh, there are seven, eight volumes of books and, and it was about everything. It was about, you know, science, it was about authors, it was about general knowledge, current affairs, about everything under the sun, actually. And he used to bring me a lot of storybooks then. Uh, and my father, I, 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 I saw because, you know, India Today of 1980s, it used to be there. I didn't read much then, but I, I just, you know, flipped through the papers. Uh, but when I grew up, you know, I, I uh, started reading newspaper. Like from class 6-7, uh, we used to get newspaper in the evening actually or the next day. But I used to subscribe to Assam Tribune, which has become a Rwanda radio now, very sadly. And I used to write to the children's column. And so it, it, it used to give, give me very good feeling uh, getting published there, my seeing my photo there. And also, uh, I used to read a spot star a lot, which is published by the Hindu. And uh, I remember when Sania Mirza was 12 years old, I saw her name in one of the spot star issue. Later on, she became very famous. So Sportstar was like, and at that point of time, if I don't know if you remember, there used to be a poster in the middle page of the Sportstar, <laughs> and entire room was, you know, I filled with those posters. Matthew Hadden, all those people, you know, mostly cricketer. Other, I gave it to people because I was mostly interested in cricketers. So whenever there used to be a cricket issue, uh, I used to, you know, buy it every because they used to bring the 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 stall. I used to order them, uh, tell them to bring. So uh, um, that that's the kind of things I, 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 I read. But I was not a serious reader. I think the first book that I read uh, completely was The Ignited Minds. And that changed my life. I owe a lot to, you know, Abdul Kalam, APJ Abdul Kalam. Because the first line starts with uh, dream, dream, dream. Dream change into thoughts. Thought change into action. And that actually, you know, I started dreaming, actually. He, there is a line in that book called this, small aim is a crime. You know, before that, I used to dream only to be a cricketer. But later on, you know, if I actually got that book before, maybe I would have taken cricket more seriously. But uh, yeah, that line sort of had a very uh, good impression on me. And because it was, those were the time when everything, you know, looks like, you know, Eureka moment because I was reading more books. And so that was a kind of eureka moments for me. And uh, that book uh, entirely changed me. And with regard to religious instruction, my, I, like I said, my grandfather was a religious, uh, uh, you know, leader. And uh, my father is a scholar in Arabic. And we used to go to Masjid, we used to read, you know, I tried to read Arabic, but I, I failed, you know, uh, I'm really ashamed that, you know, I, because um, if you, if you, uh, you know, learn more language, it's good for you. Today, I have a lot of friends from Arab countries, but I don't know how to speak Arabic or, or read. I should have actually, but I failed to, you know, learn Arabic much, but I, I, I know all those duas and all. Uh, to read namaz and i and in bangalore when i was there my religion helped me a lot because there it was a, it was a culture shock for me in the hostel and i was little isolated from everyone and i used to uh, say namaz say namaz a lot i mean and and my re religion you know kept me uh, i would say in the right path <laughs> so uh, yeah i was uh, um, uh, um, i uh, with regard to religion and all it was normally i mean what you know any muslim kid 
uh, goes through i mean uh, just saying namaz and learning all those virtues my grandfather uh, you know was a very uh, wise man so his he had a he so once we were we were laughing giggling and he called us he said why did you why are you making so noise and you need to be calm in life we didn't value things then but now i realize that you know it's not about the laughing that he must be complaining but because i was so restless then i uh, so he he was trying to uh, you know explain to me that in life you need to be a little calmer and all and you need to have patience i was very impatient as a as a as a kid and he used to quote prophet muhammad and and, and you know uh, say why you need to be very patient in life so those were the things that Uh, uh although i did not value much then because i was too young to understand but later on in life i realized that you know what my grandfather was trying to explain at what point of time in your life did you realize that uh, you want to go into the study of law i actually i always had interest uh, uh, in uh, current affairs i had interest uh, uh, i wanted to become a civil servant actually i didn't wanted to become a lawyer uh, these things didn't strike me earlier uh, so i my my uh, friend used to tease me as you know apsc in, in in all over india is upsc in assam it is called apsc assam public service commission they used to call me as apsc so uh, that's how i took up law actually uh, that uh, and my father uh, my father said you know this, this is a good course if you want to whatever you want to do in life uh, if you want to become a civil servant go and study law so it was it was uh, nothing that i wanted to do i wanted to become a lawyer but i took maybe law because my father advised me and then i uh, you know wanted to become a civil servant actually even in bangalore you know i used to uh, subscribe to the hindu all five years i i, I regularly read hindu i read the editorial and all and uh, only to become a civil servant but uh, uh, later on when i 2007 again you know cricket comes when the first world cup happened i bought a small tv onida tv uh, 14 inch so we used to watch all cricket matches in our um, my room all my batchmate and all but i basically bought that tv not only because of the world cup 2007 but because i wanted to my english accent was not very good i don't know if it improved now but it it is you know much different from then <clears throat> i wanted to listen to barkha i wanted to listen to rajib sardesai they were the stalwarts then uh, you know i wanted to uh, watch all those debates uh, so basically for watching news i bought the tv so an incident happened in assam in 2008 in udalguri where there was a clash between muslims and and <clears throat> non muslims it was a communal clash actually so the uh, i think it was times now then and times now it was not this times now i mean 2008 i'm talking at no october so there was a sticker running uh, in the bottom that clash between tribals and bangladeshis so it striked me i mean i i called up my father i say what is going on um, you know bangladeshi these of course these people are not bangladeshis um i called up people uh, other people i said what is going on there is no there is a communal riot so so i called up times now then uh, uh, i i i yeah, it was times now uh, so uh, i called them up and i said you know uh, where did you get this news i remember they called me we got it from the service people i mean maybe they were talking about police forces and all i say i am from assam this is wrong information that you are giving Uh, it is not a uh, uh, clash between bangladeshis and tribals 
sadly this is a clash between muslims and non muslims right so um, this is wrong to say they are bangladeshis so they texted me that uh, we are changing the news at 3 pm so 3 pm they runs a striker clash between muslims and tribals i think it is wrong to say you know that there is a clash between two community they could have said between two communities not specific specific religion but at least you know i took a solace in saying that at least muslims are not being called as bangladeshis so that incident again had a had a great impact on me uh, and i thought that if i become a civil servant and because you know it was evolving during that period of time i used to see myself debating in tv taking a stand uh, so i thought that if i become a civil servant uh, i would lose my voice i will not be able to say what i want to say and slowly steadily when i started learning about uh, start, start you know studying nehru uh, rafiq zakaria farid zakaria's father uh, i don't know if you if you know him uh, he was a politician uh, you know a freedom fighter his books had a great impact on me uh, so those are the things that started you know uh, you know my building my ideology uh, my Uh, you know the i started learning about the idea of india uh, i read nehru gandhi azad so then i thought you know if i become a civil servant this is not i i can't work like these people right of course you know <laughs> i can't be a freedom fighter now but i can't stand for a value uh, because by then i realized because my father was a professor and then he become uh, a uh, you know educational service officer and i saw how much pressure he used to get from politician and and he uh, can't speak out what he want to so i thought uh, you know this is not what i would be doing i want to become i am studying law i think you know uh, i am in the right profession uh, uh, right course and let us become uh, let me become a lawyer so that i i can become voice of people and those things um, then i i, I thought i would become a big time supreme court lawyer i went to supreme court uh, and uh, but i thought you know Uh, i can't make much difference from supreme court from delhi uh, if you ask me that questions what they took me back to assam i can answer that question no i before we get there i want to kind of understand uh, you know when you were growing up in assam and then uh, as you uh, slowly entered uh, legal studies as well you had an idea of you know the political situation in assam right how did you experience it as a child this whole thing about you know um, the several communities living in assam the assam accord um, you know the the border situation all of that how did how you know how, how did you experience these things growing up and then and while entering legal studies i was a completely those what you call happy go lucky child kind of things i was completely oblivious of things that is going around i was uh, not in prison i used to go to political rallies because you know it is it is a big thing in rural area just to listen to what uh, politician used to say and i did not understand much because i think now i realize that they are they talks bullshit that is why i did not understand they don't talk about ideas they just they just go to meeting and talk bullshit uh still class 10 i i i really didn't uh, you know didn't know much about things about assam accord or the border situation border situation was normal actually but i had no idea about this uh i would say that you know when i came to so you know as a child growing up i was so uh, you know keen on cricket and i was so passionate about my team maybe my love for my country that actually grew from cricket i think that is for most of the children right i think that is what the first lesson they get when they cheer for indian cricket team and then later on you read 
constitution civic gandhi nehru and then we become little patriotic in life maybe but initial you know your attachment to your country is i think maybe support for your team so i was to be so passionate about the games passionate about my team uh, that i was to pray nafal namaz nafal is you know there are five time namaz in a day nafal you read it's a separate namaz for some well being for some good i used to literally read nafal namaz for team and i used to be big time ajit agarkar fan <laughs> oh my god same here <laughs> ajit and 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 ajit agarkar if he, his first over used to go well he his 10 over will go well if first over if he gets 3 4 you know boundaries he is gone so i used to say why is this not guy performing well i used to pray literally for him individual prayers for ajit agarkar so when i came to guwahati and someone someone first firstly you know what is strike me someone called me a bangladeshi my one of my batchmate and it is strike me and and it made me thinking ki how come bangladesh how can i be a bangladeshi you know i am an indian and i am so proud about my country uh, why why did he why did he abuse me as a bangladeshi it, then it didn't strike me as abuse but it had a deep impression and, and it made me thinking a lot right i was very naive then i came from a village area although i used to, i i i i knew about the world i i used to i you know i used to participate in quiz and all i used to read current affairs but these things was i was completely oblivious and my batchmate in class 11 called me a bangladeshi second time in class 12 so there was a cricket match going on between i think india and pakistan uh, so someone called me tu to pakistan ko support support karta hoga saale gaddar literally these words and he was my friend like he was in commerce section now he became a lawyer i used to see him and i tell him that you had a great impression in my life so uh, but by then by in the class 12 i got a sense of the thing that i am a muslim and i, I you know i am little different from others before that i had my hindu batchmate and all, not batchmate but schoolmates and all and i had no difference with anyone i think it is all normal people i mean i had no sense of my being muslim being my i am not conscious about my identity but slowly and steadily i started become conscious of my identity and these two words in 11th i was abused as a bangladeshi and 12 someone called me a pakistani supporter i mean and that was that really hurt me you know hit me hard that you know why would i support pakistan you know why would i support pakistan this is my country and you know this is i how i grew up i used to literally my village when my village used to play i used to you know art indian flag on my uh, in my in my on my hand on my arms although both teams of course are village team indian team that was the kind of passion i was i had for my country and then i am you know i am being called as a as a bangladeshi pakistani supporter uh, and people took take this very normally right they don't realize that you know we are uh, abusing our fellow citizens our fellow indians and and calling them something which might hurt them but if i look back i see that those two things had a great impression in my life and it really changed my life right it really changed my life and uh, the later on what whatever i did in my life uh, i realized when i started fighting cases for uh, my clients and i they are accused of being a bangladeshi by border police i think that if my friend would have been a border police i would have been standing in the court today defending my citizenship so you know these are not simple thing you are questioning people's existence people's identity so then slowly slowly i came to know there is something called sk sinha report there is something called assam accord 
so that is the things i i i realized later on but these are not things that made me realize but my first you know encounter with these with these ideas were you know from my batchmates who made me realize that you know i am little different and i need to uh, you know i'm not like them uh, i always considered that i am not different from anyone but i was made to feel that i am different so those things had had great influence in my life whatever i am doing today maybe those two words have you know huge contribution towards whatever i am doing today it enrage me that how can how can i someone abuse me as bangladeshi right you know uh, uh, if you call me if like that's like my brother calling me i don't belong to my parents right that i am a you know adopted children or, or or something like that so that is completely unacceptable to me You're listening to Aman Vadud on the Nagrik podcast. If you like what you've heard so far, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. That really is the best way to support our work. Nagrik podcasts are a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project to reduce inequality in access to knowledge about law, public institutions, and civic and political participation. Right now on www.nagriklearning.com, you can learn for free from video lectures and other materials. about advancing the rights of workers in supply chains about the rights of women to decent work and about community participation in the governance of india's forests before we took this break aman vadud was describing his life as a law student in bangalore where he was between 2005 and 2010 soon he would move to delhi to practice law at the supreme court of india and i think that uh, these two things you know reading books and and watching debate uh, influenced me a lot to change my decision and my way of thinking and i <clears throat> started thinking that you know if i am uh, you know if i become a civil, if, even if i succeed in becoming a civil servant then i i i will not succeed in doing this you know i will not succeed in 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 taking a stand uh, so i think that this 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 you know series of uh, things helped me to change my uh, goal and i thought that you know because i'm uh, you know i'm i'm in a good uh, course now i'm a dllb student and i'm studying law and 3 years down the line i'm become i'm i'll be a qualified lawyer so i think civil service is not my call i think it is practice litigation which is my call uh uh by then i i i i had no idea what kind of uh, practice uh litigation what kind of cases i will take up uh, uh i just i just wanted to to speak speak up you know uh so i just wanted to uh, ensure that you know whoever is in distress um, finds me uh, that was one thing that was going through my mind uh so uh, initial 
initial that 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 feeling was uh, you know this not the this concept of human rights or whatever but that feeling for people right that, that is what is human right basically so that empathizing with people that okay there is something wrong and maybe i can do something but what i can do i was not very clear that slowly and steadily become become clear so when i when i when i in 2010 in my fifth year when i i, I interned with mr prashant bhushan uh, so then i got a first an experience of human rights lawyering uh, he he is a pro bono lawyer he don't take money from uh, public interest cases uh, but also i i i i realized that you know uh, he is doing in the supreme court and he is influencing policy uh, through his litigation uh, and i was more inclined towards making difference to the lives of people uh, on the ground so uh, but 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 there was no i was not very clear about how i will go ahead then i joined supreme court uh, i i started my 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 practice in the supreme court so you are uh, you finished uh, legal studies you're in delhi but you feel a sense of disillusionment over the kind of legal practice that you're doing in the supreme court and in delhi and explain to me the circumstances in which you returned to assam uh so it it was then this 2012 riot uh, broke out uh, there was a mass displacement of people around 5 lakh people were displaced from their homes in kokrajhar actually kokrajhar and chirang district so uh, and and it was that period then that you know gogoi was hearing the nrc case also so i w- i used to attend those his hearing and i used to get very angry with the kind of things spoken uh, said in the court uh, the attitude of the bench uh, the the language of the lawyers of the petitioner uh, so uh, these two things had uh, again you know very deep influence on me uh, the riot had influence in me because i was running from here and there uh, there were protests in jantar mantar i was attending those protests and i was feeling like a fool uh, i i thought that you know what i'm not against protest per se i think protest is a very important part of a you know democratic society uh, but uh, that is not my way right i i thought that you know i am just a small part of this protest how, how am i making difference to this protest how am i making difference to the real problem right just by being a part of the crowd uh, i again repeat that i am not against protest i mean peaceful protest peaceful assembly is a constitutional right and it should be promoted and supported uh, but but i thought that you know that i am not a part of it i i cannot do this and uh, this is not helping my cause whatever i want to do so then i thought that i should i should go back home and 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 do something uh, one thing always used to hit me then uh, was uh, uh, the absolute impunity to towards uh, towards criminal perpetrators whoever used to commit uh, whoever used to massacre muslims this started from nelly nelly riot where 299 charge sheet were filed more than 600 fir were lodged and all cases were dropped by one single order and no one complained about it no one you know went to the higher court about, uh, against it so i thought that uh, uh, you know this impunity is cyclic the the way massacre is cyclic 
the, another massacre happened which no one talks about it's Saulkwa, very near to the recent eviction where you know this Monul Hawk was stomped by Bijoy Bonia Dhalpur adjacent island, river island where around a thousand people died uh, were massacred uh, again in, in two days. So after that whatever massacre happened it happened in Kokrajhar and it was largely it was largely sponsored and instigated by terrorist groups uh, because in Assam there is a phenomenon that whenever terrorist groups uh, we are very kind to them we say militant and not terrorist uh, so that is part of our hypocrisy mm, so whatever you call it militant or, or or terrorist whenever they want to assert their identity that we we prevail we are there because they they have certain kind of demands uh, and they want to instill fear in the mind of people so i think this is done for, for you know with two two intentions one to tell the government that we exist and secondly to instill fear in the mind of people that uh, this terrorist group or, or so called militant group exist uh, so they used to kill muslims and adivasis in a very cyclic manner either is 1993 1998 2002 and there are many more small incident kept happening Kidnappings was the order of the day in BTAD area, uh, but this ma massacre of Adivasis and Muslims was cyclic. I mean, hundreds, hundreds, they used to be killed in hundreds, uh, and there used to be no justice. So, and there was an absolute impunity. And this terrorist group used to join politics, they used to become messy of the people. Uh, so, uh, by the way, these are crime against humanity, and uh, this is still uh, 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 an, an international law debate that whether general amnesty should be given to people who has committed heinous crime uh, during this so-called militancy movement and all and there has been instances in the history where these people have been have been, I, I, I know, have been convicted either in sierra leone where uh, where the so-called militant leader has been sentenced to 50 years imprisonment or in other places uh, where people have been imprisoned because of violating uh, committing crime against humanity and international United Nations 2003 annual report, 2013 annual report says that you know this blanket amnesty to people who has committed uh, who has committed uh, atrocities this kind of atrocities and crime against humanity kidnapping torture killings in a systematic manner should not be pardoned but in Assam in Northeast they get pardons and there is not a whisper about this uh, this this international law or or basically you know how whenever whenever you commit this kind of genocide uh, massacre people in hundreds and commit uh, this kind of crimes how can you pardon those people and these are the people like Hagrama Mohilari he he's a politician today he ruled uh, BTAD and there are other politicians who are joining uh, who are who, who are joining politics by surrendering uh, you know they don't surrender arms uh, but but yeah they surrender on the face of it and they become hero for the people these are no civil society should do this. I mean, you cannot pardon this kind of crime. But whatever it may be, I mean, there is a general, uh, you know, they get impunity. So that used to hit me a lot that, you know, why should there be an impunity towards people who commits this kind of crime and pe pe kills people in thousands, where, where they did in Chaolkwa and Nelly and hundreds in BTAD areas. So uh, I thought that I should go back to Assam and, uh, and try to figure out what. I can do in the on the ground. I was not very clear. I knew that you know uh, I was very much aware about these cases, uh, the foreigners' cases uh, about. Uh, but more than that, at that point of time, 
was this impunity that, that used to hurt me a lot, pinch me a lot. So when I went uh, in like the end of 2013 to, to Assam uh, and I joined trial court and directly from the Supreme Court to trial court because I thought that, you know, the trial court is going to help me because I, I want to make material difference with the lives of people. And I have seen how high, you know, in the higher courts, uh, of course, you know, there's a constitutional court, you can make a lot of difference, but you need knowledge of the trial court. So it is that period of time on after six months when I went to Assam, 2nd of May 2014, uh, another 38 Muslims were massacred and uh, in a period of 40 minutes. And these people were forest rangers and, 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 and milit again, military terrorist groups. So uh, uh, Chief Minister Tarungu Goy, he said that, you know, this case will be handed over to the NIA. And uh, 83, it took 83 days to hand over to the NIA. By then, Assam police destroyed a lot of evidence by then. So I, I got involved with, with those people. I went to that village. It is, it is a beautiful place, you know, on the bank of the river Manas uh, and by national for, uh, Manas National Park. Uh, beautiful, beautiful place. I, I really wonder how can people commit such gruesome violence in such beautiful place. But that is an, an irony. You see Kashmir, Chechnya, all these gruesome things happens in these beautiful places. Uh, so... I, I, I started interacting with these people. Initially, they didn't entertain me. Uh, you know, there used to be, be AIDF, Jamiat groups. They used to go and say that, you know, we will help you. But I knew no one is going to help them. No one is going to pursue these cases. So uh, I, I, I organized legal aid camp there. I tried to convince them that, uh, uh, you know, have, have trust in, in the judiciary, have trust in the judicial process in the constitution and if you can pursue this case uh, uh, the 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 perpetrators will be convicted so uh, after 83 days the case was handed over to the nia and nia came to know that there is a lawyer who is working with these people nia officers had language problem because these people speak bengali so then they got in touch with me and i, I got and i got involved with the process and they filed the charge sheet very soon um, and I, I started, you know, whenever these people used to come to Guwahati to record 164 statement. 164 is a statement which a, uh, a victim or any witness, uh, you know, gives before the magistrate. So then I used to, uh, I used to be, be with them just as a moral support. Then the when was the case was charged, the trial started. I filed an application before the court to assist the NIA, uh, which is basically the, you know, counsel for the victim. Uh, for the complainant so i am their their counsel now even i was when i was here there was a hearing so they called me so my my my, my teammates my fellow lawyers they helped uh, them to you know uh, with the depositions and they were in the court uh, so that is how i i went back to assam and that it was during that period of time i start start getting this so-called foreigner cases and uh, people accused of being illegal, quote-unquote illegal migrant. Can you explain what the Foreigners Tribunal and how the NRC is related to it and the Foreigners Act of 1946 and the Sarban and the Sonoval case, all of these things? So, I need to give you a background about Assam. You know, Assam and uh, Bangladesh shares border and uh, Bengal was partitioned in 1905 and for six, seven years, the capital of the administrative capital of Assam was in Dhaka, uh, which is East Bengal, now in Bangladesh. 
my great grandparents they migrated from a place now in bangladesh uh, in 1870s uh, to a place in 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 gualpara district now in dhubri district but that place has been eroded away which is a river island uh in 18 18 90 98 99 they came to came to the place where we we live now where we reside now which is 80 km away from guwahati so migration happened very organically initially but after the partition of bengal if you read you know books uh, history uh, uh the british thought that there are a lot of barren land in assam and if these lands are not cultivated then there will be scarcity of food in assam that was one reason to motivate and to incentivize migration from east bengal to assam and there was a 5 rupees tickets given for railway tickets you know for entire family until 1930 the census commissioner cs mulan says half a million people migrated uh, there are agrarian historian um, radha kamal mukherjee who writes you know around a million people migrated till 1930s so mostly migration happened before independence uh, i don't know any person who migrated after independence uh, uh, so what happened you know there was of course resistance uh, by the local community uh, against bengalis who are migrating and this is not only with bengali muslims because you know when british uh, went to assam and they had administered assam they they took a lot of babus from west bengal who is to read and write in 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 bengali and then assamese community felt little uh, i think rightly they felt a little offended because they are not getting the top jobs and for certain uh, period of time in in 1800s uh, you know the, the official language was bengali uh, so that resistance against bengalis were always there and when there was an influx of people uh, it, before 1930s so people become little conscious more conscious there was a line system in nogao area that people cannot come beyond this area so in the middle assam uh, so that resistance was always there post independence again there was another spate of migration when the bangladesh war took place and and this time mostly bengali hindus uh, who were facing persecution in bangladesh uh everyone faced persecutions in bangladesh during that war where the the pakistani army used to you know uh, but but hindus I, I it is quite apparent that you know they were the minorities there and they probably fa- they, they must have faced more uh, you know uh, persecution than others so a lot of people migrated during bengali hindus migrated in 1965 to 60 from 60s to 70 uh, 70s so uh, in uh, in 1979 the assam movement started so there was a report that in mongoldoi district in dorong district where this recent eviction happened and actually what happened you know a lot of you know assam another fact i would like to mention uh, from sodia to dhubri you know from the place from where assam starts in the upper assam till the till bangladesh border you know the river brahmaputra river is uh, very dangerous and very wide at some places it is 17 km wide and it is only because of erosion and according to a report uh, 8% of the Assam landmass, 8% has been eroded away by river Brahmaputra, which is like the state of Goa. And this is not a recent uh, figure. This is like, I think, 10, 20 years back figure. So erosion is a big problem. We talk about floods, but we don't talk about erosion. So because of erosion, you know, these all these people, Bengali Muslim who, who settled in the riverine area, they lose the land. They lost the land and then they shifted to a place where they found barren land. This place from where they are now being evicted was barren land. So they went and they settled there from these districts, from Kamru, from Barpeta, Gualpara. So they went and they settled there. Uh, so then, you know, there was a there was a rise in the voters apparently, but that was inflated. 
the number of voters were inflated uh, the number were inflated and you know there are books now there are articles azaz ashraf has written an article on a scroll explaining how this one police officer he completely you know inflated this number and that become the reason for uh, you know assam movement uh, uh, before an mp election member of parliament election uh, this this figures came out came out so that became a reason for assam movement to to uh, to delete deport uh, you know so called foreigners uh and it was both both against uh, hindus and muslims uh so that six year of assam movement uh you know you know you know ended with an assam accord uh signed between you know um, tripartite accord signed between assam government indian government rajiv gandhi signed it i think it was 15 august uh, 1985 and the um, the assam all assam student union then there was another organization uh so they signed the assam accord and according to assam accord basically it talks about uh, you know uh, protection of the uh, uh, you know the culture language uh, it talks about the iits you know uh, but most importantly it was about uh, you know deporting deleting detecting you know 3d detect deport and delete uh, foreigners and according uh, foreigners so the 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 regime of accusing people of being illegal migrants started then imdt act during this period in 1983 came into being uh, which had this mechanism of uh, detecting accusing people of being foreigner the burden of proof was on the state then but that act was only for assam so that's how uh, you know the regime of accusing people of being illegal migrant uh, started although i need to mention that you know the foreigners tribunal thing started much before uh, uh, but it was not functioning regularly on and off uh so since 1987 imdt but parallelly there were some foreigners tribunal which were functioning so in 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 i think in the year 2000 maybe or uh, 2001 when the case was filed the judgment came in 2005 sarvanth sonwal challenged the imdt act so during this time you know because of the assam movement i need to mention that several figures were thrown out that there are this million bangladeshis that million bangladeshis 5 6 7 there are people who said there are two crores bangladeshi in assam two crores when the entire population of northeast was not two crore and people believed that right so uh, subsequently you know that narrative stayed because leadership uh, uh, there was no leadership from the from the muslim congress failed to counter those narrative uh, and uh, even congressmen used to give those figures uh, So in 1997, Assam Governor S K Sinha, 1998, he came up with a report. It was a bigoted report, a xenophobic report, and he completely communalized and gave a religious color to migration. He said that you know, uh, he 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 blamed Islamic fundamentalism, and more shockingly, he said that because of this uh, uh, illegal migration, insurgency took, you know, started in Assam. If you read. any person who 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 read insurgency they will know that insurgency is not because of illegal migration it was there are several reason because you know the center used to avoid assam those were the reason or in other part of the northeast those were the reason that gave rise to uh, insurgency either ulfa and these people you know very interestingly ulfa they after they were evicted from bhutan they stayed in bangladesh some of their you know their children are still in bangladesh and when they came to assam after surrendering their children couldn't even speak in assamese they spoke in bangla so to say sk sina going and telling that insurgency is because of uh, illegal migration was a lie 
he said that you know this muslim dominated district this uh, you know uh, will one day claim to merge with bangladesh i will just give one fact that you have seen this one young guy 9 years old guy saluting indian national flag neck deep in water that photo become viral that is from this muslim area from the muslim district this is a district which this person called sk sinha said will merge with bangladesh it was an, not only alarmist is a very kind word but it was a bigoted report it was bunch of lies it was bunch of that completely destroyed you know millions of people's lives later on and i will explain it to you but the supreme court very tragically you know took his words as gospel truth and quoted that that report uh, large part of the report verbatim to come to a conclusion that there is an you know internal disturbance and external aggression because of illegal migration complete lie and that is how that is why the imdt act was uh, was was set aside and it was said that, that the foreigners act will 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 be applied to detect foreigners and foreigners tribunal will uh, uh, will uh, adjudicate these cases now foreigners act is a colonial act it's a pre constitutional act 1946 but there is a history to it the foreigners act has has its roots in foreigners uh, ordinance 1939 and that ordinance was brought as an emergency you know during emergency time uh for a situation that was created by the second world war it was a war time legislation i think there was nine war time legislation if i am not wrong and seven legislation put the burden of proof on the accused on the alien in the foreigners act it was um, on the alien that foreigners act become foreigners act 1940 section 7 talks about the burden of proof on the alien that same act you know uh, became 1946 act pre constitutional act now it doesn't talk about foreigners tribunal and all 1964 by an executive order a foreigners tribunal order 1964 was brought in in and the entire country whichever tribunal you see either it's a central administrative tribunal green tribunal patent tribunal name it they are creation of a legislation foreigners tribunal is the only tribunal in the country which is a creation of a an executive order which means it did not go through this legislative process it was not debated and all and foreigners tribunal order talks about establishing foreigners tribunal and the the members it's not the judges the members who will head this tribunal initially it was said that it will be a judicial member a person with judicial experience now a person with judicial experience would be a retired judge a sitting judge subsequently that provision was relaxed to a lawyer with 10 years of experience who can become a tribunal member and adjudicate citizenship cases and then it was further relaxed to a lawyer with 7 years of experience so basically a lawyer with 7 to 10 years of experience will decide your citizenship in a polarized state where people have this pre preconceived notion that there are millions of illegal migrants now there are two agencies earlier which used to send these cases to foreigners tribunal what happens in a criminal court police state police cid cbi nia these are the investigation agencies so before the foreigners tribunal the investigation agencies or the referral agencies are the assam border police organization which was formed in 1962 now 
This was formed to stop apparently in flux. But they have their presence in all police stations across Assam. These are Assam police only. They are just separate branch. Now their job is to how do you accuse a person of a, uh, of, a of being a foreigner? You approach a suspicious person, ask for document. If they cannot provide document, then you may accuse them of being an illegal migrant. And you know, fair investigation is a part of fundamental right. You can arbitrarily you can't accuse a person of being a fundamental uh, of being a foreigner. But border police, I have fought hundreds of cases. I have not come across one where border police investigated the case well. I will give one example. Sanaullah, who was an army man, served the Indian Army for 30 years. 2010, he was accused of being a foreigner. The date that the police forced uh, in the referral paper, on that date, he was in Manipur serving Indian Army. Look at the irony. He was serving for an uh, operation called Hifazat. And we know Hifazat means security in Manipur. That was the day apparently he confessed to the police that I am an illegal migrant. He was a good student. He is an educated person. The police forced his thumb impression. The police forced thumb impression of three person who made them witness saying that that person is a foreigner. Modus operandi. Modus operandi I am telling you. This is the modus operandi the border police follows to declare person as a foreigner. When I spoke to some border police, of the record, they told me they have huge pressure from their government, uh, from their senior officer, irrespective of the government. Irrespective of the government, even during the Congress period, this was happening presently. But there was no, uh, I don't know if, how, how much political pressure was there, but definitely pressure from their, you know, their superior officer. This is border police. Another came, uh, another investing agency is the Election Commission of India. Now, since 1997, what they started doing is accusing people you know marking people as doubtful voter this process was more random in the sense that they just took out the voter list and they just randomly marked d and very surprisingly they marked more women as a d voter right overnight they marked thousands of people as d voter they, at that period of time i think 3 lakh 15 thousand people were marked as doubtful voter in 1997 subsequently in 2005 more people were uh, marked as doubtful voter. Now this doubtful voter, these cases are sent to again to border police. Border police sign it and they refer it to uh, the border SP, refer it to uh, of that particular district, refer it to the foreigners tribunal. This is the same case with what the border police constable, uh, the you know inspector uh, officer in charge sent. So basically all these two cases from the border police and election commission goes to the border police and the uh, superintendent of police of the particular district uh, refer you to the foreigners tribunal. Now the foreigners tribunal will send you notice that you know you have been accused of being a foreigner come and prove your citizenship. Now uh, you go to the tribunal and you prove your citizenship you take all documents. Now what after the Assam Accord what happened citizenship act was amended section 6a was inserted into it and the, the timeline of citizenship was made as 25th March 1971. As to so as to you know, uh, there are two timelines in India. One is for the rest of the country, and one because of the, the peculiar situation in Assam. And it says that any person who came before from 1 1 1966 to 20, 25th uh, March 1971, during this period, if you come and you submit any document during this period, your uh, voting rights of 10 years will be curtailed, will be taken away, and after that, you can become a citizen. Uh, but if you come up from 1971, 25th March 1971, you are a foreigner. So basically, you need to provide document before 1 1 1966. 
and show that you are an Indian citizen. So when I started fighting cases in from 2014, you know, I used to submit four documents and foreigners tribunal member was largely, uh, largely liberal then, you know, they used to go through the document and decide citizenship cases, which shows that there was no political pressure to uh, on, on the judiciary, although it's called a quasi-judicial body, but because it is deciding your citizenship, you know, your most important rights, the right to have rights, you, they are deciding your existence, right? So there should not be any political interference. So during the Congress government, I can tell you with all responsibility, there was no political pressure. Otherwise, the cases would not have been decided uh, uh, so liberally uh, according following due process of law. This does not go well with all tribunal members. Some tribunal members would have been politically, uh, ideologically motivated, motivated and who were more, uh, I would not say strict, but who, uh, I would say they are, you know, not following the due, due process of law. So I used to submit four documents and win cases before the BGP came to power. The moment BGP came to power, you know, suddenly things become very stringent. Suddenly the same tribunal members started asking me for more documents, saying that they have pressure from uh, from the home department. Uh, and then in 2017, they terminated the government of Assam. Uh, actually, the home and political department who appoint these members, uh, they terminated 17 tribunal members, 17, 19, uh, 17 tribunal members and when they, these people went to the high court, the assessment report submitted by the home department says that they, uh, you know, they performed, underperformed. And what is the basis of underperformance? Declaring more people as an Indian and less people as a foreigner. Although the Guwahati High Court set aside that assessment report saying that the government of Assam don't have any business to assess their performance, but that, you know, the pressure on the tribunal remained. That set a narrative that, you know, if you don't declare people as foreigner, your job will be terminated because these tribunal members do not have any security of job and they are appointed for two years time. Subsequent to 2019, they, are, they, are, they have been appointed for one year of time. So basically, if you don't, you know, uh, declare more people as foreigners, your job, you, you might be terminated. That is the uh, narrative set. Now, in the background, some, an organization went, went to the uh, Supreme Court saying that there should be a national register of citizens. Uh, basically, that petition was so bigoted, it said that to arbitrarily delete people from voter list. And this person, the, the Assam Public Work, they provided a framework where by your title, by your name, you can be deleted. I can't believe that bigoted petition was, was you know, became a, a, you know, a bed, bedrock for an NRC. And in 2014, 17th of December, Justice Nariman and Gogoi, came with this order uh, that there should be an NRC in Assam. Uh, and that order, if you read, you know, that heavily quoted from the from the uh, SK Sinha report and the Sarvanda Sonwal judgment. Uh, and also, you know, in 2004, Assam's, uh, you know, India's MOS, Minister of Home, uh, Minister of State for Home Affairs, Sri Prakash Jaiswal, uh, I think who was an MP from Kanpur, Congress MP, he said that there are 50 lakhs Bangladeshis in Assam. Second day, he withdrew that statement saying that this is not my statement was not based on any empirical data. It was hearsay thing. That withdrawal statement is still there in the Rajya Sabha uh, website. Honorable Supreme Court, the judgment authored by Justice Nariman quoted the first day statement and did not mention anything about the withdrawal statement, which is still there in the Rajya Sabha, which I think I don't know if he knew about it, but going by Justice Nariman Nature, you know, 
who immediately after retirement came up with two thick book harvard law school graduate an amazing lawyer i wouldn't you know in other judgment he he was a great judge also but in this judgment he was completely off the track and uh, the kind of judgment he passed i guess was not the not the person he is and if he failed to even you know cross check that simple thing i am really sorry what was we doing then uh, so that become that judgment started nrc in assam and unlike you know the protest in the entire country against nrc the muslims of assam supported the supreme court judgment then although i knew that this judgment is horribly wrong but you know we thought that because peoples are being arbitrarily uh, accused of being foreigner there is a narrative of illegal migrations your children are accused of being bangladeshis abused of being bangladeshis we are seen as a different people we claim ourselves to be assamese not accepted as assamese we go to assamese medium school write as mother tongue as assamese but still seen as outsiders we thought why not go through this nrc movement or nrc process clear our citizenship and then then there should be a closure don't accuse us of being a foreigner after this the entire process we took part in it you know my friends my colleagues a muslim organization they went to all this 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 was your first i client conducted to be known and why did that person come to you many many informational session on how to apply for nrc there was absolutely no protest there was overwhelming support that okay let's clear this process and after this don't accuse us of being a foreigner right but that process turned out to be very stringent very harsh particularly for children uh you know where only birth certificate was was acceptable document for them and there were no birth certificate for every children so uh, that was the time it was a life changing moment for me when i when i met people you know in mass level hundreds and thousands of people i met i saw that the pain in their eyes the fear of losing citizenship and uh, you know in 2016 the bjp came to power and that's when we thought that you know things will will turn really bad uh but having said that i believe that despite the fact that supreme court on a very misplaced agenda and mis, you know justifying large scale illegal migration ordered this uh, uh nrc citizenship scrutiny process but i believe that because supreme court was there it was the process was stringent but it was far more transparent and and far more fair than the earlier border police who you know even accused army officer who was on a duty for india of being illegal without an investigation they accused people of being illegal migrant i thought this process was far more fair is not a word i will use but but better than other process better than earlier process where people used to be randomly marked as foreigners so uh, some government uh, employees in though they took part in it you know although lot of people were had this you know a uh, uh, preconceived notion but i would say because pratik hajela who was an indian administrative service officer who was the state coordinator for the nrc he used to report to the to the supreme court and the supreme court was regularly monitoring it and there was people from minority student union the jamiyat who, who had the lawyer sibbal used to appear very uh, mr sibbal kapil sibbal used to appear very regularly for these cases so then i think there was a cross check there was a balance that you can't arbitrarily drop people uh, but i believe in the fact end when they didn't find foreigner actually 
Just imagine Supreme Court justifying large-scale illegal migration, quoting 50 lakhs data, finally coming into 1.9 million people. It completely boomeranged even in the Supreme Court. It backfired on the judgment itself. Right? So the people who started the NRC process for whom NRC was the only process which could save Assam, they turned against NRC. When they saw that the number of exclusion is going to be horribly less. And who are these people's 1.9 million people? I will tell you. These are the people's, you know, mostly there were Bengali Hindus. And they are not foreigners. They all came before 1971. Forget about 1971. A lot of people are here since it's more than a century. They are excluded from the NRC. Muslims. My own cousin. Uncle auntie's name is there. Cousin's names are not there. Modus operandi. You know, entire family's name is there. The woman's name is not there. Because, you know, woman, this entire citizenship regime, you know, it is very, very unfair on women. Because a woman, Muslim woman, you know, you know, you know, in Assam, the Muslim women are mostly illiterate. And they get married before turning 18. So, basically, before turning the age of voting. And in 1989, when the age of vote was reduced to 18, before it was 21, People got married before that. Now, what happens when you get married before you vote? You vote at the your matrimonial home, husband residence. So your name appears in the voter list with your husband, not with your parents. Now, one of the most important document or the most important document to prove your citizenship is the voter list. When you don't have your name with your parents in the voter list, you lose the most important document. You lose the lifeline to prove your citizenship. Now, that is the reasons why it is very difficult for women to prove their citizenship. In the NRC, you submit a 1966 or 1951 NRC, then you link yourself. Like my grandfather had 1951 NRC, then my father linked with him, I linked with my father. My sisters did the same thing. But if my sister sisters, you know, did not have matriculation certificate, they had no voter list, you know, they all voted with my father at, at our at our home so in the voter list our names are recorded together they can prove their citizenship through the linkage how does a woman who got married before turning 18 prove citizenship so it was very unfair on them uh, the entire process is discriminatory towards women uh, so largely women were have been excluded from the nrc now my question is where are foreigners where are those foreigners based on whom the entire politics of Assam depends? Even today, it's a matter of great shame. My blood boils that even today, shamelessly, you know, people are accused of being foreigners. The entire narrative is on, on illegal migration. Now, these people who realize that, you know, NRC failed to exclude as many as people as they lied, they propagated. They create a narrative that there are millions of illegal migrants. When it boomerang on them, they say, we don't need NRC. The chief minister said, people who are laughing now will cry when we will bring another NRC under Modi and Amit Shah. The chief minister who, who was not then the chief minister then, this is what this is. Asu says, we are not happy with this NRC. We want another round of NRC. Now they are changing the goalpost because their lies have been exposed. Assam movement was based on lies that there are millions of illegal migrants. Those lies have been exposed. Now they say we want re-verification of the NRC. It is very sad that Supreme Court removed Pratik Hazela and took him to Madhya Pradesh. And that became because 
that you know that happened because Pratik Hazela was hounded. There are FIR filed against him because he was not submitting to the whims and fancies of the BGP government, not to those thugs who were uh, you know you know wanted more people to be excluded from the NRC. By and large, he 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 did his job. I would say you know at the fact moment I don't know you know how the number increased to 1.9 million, but by and large he did a better job. Right, and that person was removed. And guess who was the person uh, replaced him? A person who was earlier removed from the NRC, who, who worked under Pratik Hajela. And this person wrote that there are millions of illegal migrants, lakhs and lakh, uh, lakhs and lakhs of illegal migrants in the NRC. That person, you know, says that you know minority appeasement has changed the definition of secularism. That person is today the state coordinator. And even before Himanta Biswas Sharma took oath as a chief minister, they went to the Supreme Court and filed an application for re-verification, 100% re-verification. They, they wanted to start the NRC again. I feel betrayed today. I feel betrayed that we, we told that the Supreme Court is there, we will be protected. I, we told people, let us peacefully take part in this process and there will be no harassment after this. I feel betrayed by the entire system that today, after two years of this NRC list got published, the people whose citizenship, uh, you know, who have been ex excluded from the list, I still get call from them that when we will we will uh, we'll prove our citizenship, they have not received a, a rejection slip. They have not given an opportunity to challenge that exclusion order. I feel betrayed that the entire system, including the Supreme Court, have betrayed us. Uh, it was a rickshaw puller. Uh... It, it was referred to me by a friend. Uh, so I, his name was Mojammel, I remember. And that was my first client. And uh, uh, and I saw that uh, these people can't pay their pay, pay lawyers, you know. And I realized that, you know, they are rickshaw pullers. How can they pay? And uh, initially they paid me something. I, as a lawyer, I accepted the fees and it made me feel very guilty. So I thought that I should uh, not not take money you know this is this is wrong what i am uh, whatever little money 200 300 they used to pay i feel that this is completely this is very wrong thing uh, so i stopped taking money and there was one instance where uh, uh, where I, I had a client and uh, so he gave me 300 rupees i think this was this was my second or third client uh, and I said that, uh, so he, it was 10 rupees, 50 rupees note. And so I, he told me that his wife is pregnant. Uh, I said that, do you have money because your wife is pregnant? He said, no, I will manage. So that really broke me. I said, but you take back your money. I don't need your money. <laughs> I, I mean, he was insisting. I said, no, no, you, you tell me if you need more money. Uh, so then I said that you take this money. If you need more money, please let me know. Uh, and uh, since then i stopped taking i said you know this is the this is cases where the, these are cases where you should not take money from this client and very very i mean in early days i realized uh, that you should not take money from people who are accused of being foreigner we still don't take money uh, and uh, there are some people who who pays us like 1000 2000 for paperwork because it takes a lot of money and at times it becomes a burden on me uh, to like every month we, we file five six seven cases 
and uh, we need to spend some two two thousand three thousand uh, more than that uh, per one case so it becomes very difficult at on me also at time uh, so there are like like maybe uh, once in a while the client pays like three thousand two thousand three thousand for their paperwork and uh, most of them i say don't, don't pay this money but that time they insist why so uh, my office uh, keep keep that money just to use it but we you we otherwise we file uh, we fight this case pro bono completely and i tell other lawyers also i understand that this is a profession but uh, even if they don't want to do pro bono they should charge minimum uh, amount of money see because i realize not because these people are poor this is not the only reason of course this is a major component of why i fight this case pro bono but also because it is not their fault right this is a, um, a they are the victim of the uh, they, they are the victim of the state the state is persecuting them so i think as a lawyer uh, as a responsible citizen as a defender of the constitution uh, we need to defend defend them uh, without charging them and not make do the your work, work very professionally but not make it your bread and butter uh, I, i i sustain by other cases i get other cases criminal i like doing criminal cases that is my area of interest service matter uh, i get good money there in the sense i can survive uh, run my office uh, so uh, that's what i mean that's that, that's how these ft cases start coming and uh, i i got uh, flooded with cases when i when i won this moinal mulla case so this is this is one case where which changed the course of history in assam uh, so this was moinal mulla was a, uh, was declared a foreigner by ex parte order uh, despite the fact that his parents were declared an indian citizen so he lost thrice in the high court uh, writ petition appeal review and then the his family knew that uh, his family is from my nani's place my maternal grandmother's place and they thought uh, they, they 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 came to know that i practice in the supreme court so they came to me but they had no money so we have we had a small group of uh, professional muslims and i kept it before them that this is one case where we need to take the supreme court and i although i practice in the supreme court i was little uh, reluctant to approach anyone to fight pro bono cases so i thought that uh, you know let us collect some money and go to the supreme court and uh, fight his case so they told me why you file a pil uh, why we, how will this one case help us uh, i said that look no one knows about detention center monal mulla is in detention center for more than 2 years then i said if you can fight this case tell the story to people the world will come to know that there is something called detention center so they got convinced my friend got convinced uh, we collected money and we came to the supreme court the the supreme court remanded the case to the barpeta tribunal and i traveled to barpeta uh, again we did this uh, completely pro bono whatever money we collected we invested in, in that case in the supreme court and i traveled to barpeta around 12 times i and my friend uh, colleague who is now a district judge this recently he became a district judge uh, we traveled to barpeta 12 times to defend his citizenship and we defended his citizenship and he walked out of the uh, foreign uh, detention center golpa detention center after 2 years 11 month 29 days almost 3 years and this became a big story uh, by then i had uh, i knew few people uh, in in the media uh, and they covered the story and that was the first time when this story when the story of detention started you know getting covered 
and it became a big news in Assam. I I I I use my Facebook and Twitter to tell the tell the story of Moinal Mullah, and that's how people came to know that I fight these cases pro bono. And then I I almost got flooded with cases, and now whoever don't have money, uh, they know that there is a lawyer called Aman who fight cases without money. So uh, yeah, I'm proud to do that, and inshallah I will keep doing this. I think you know this is the most important right. I think the most important litigated cases in India right now. I am surprised that many, not many people are talking about it. Not many people are not getting uh, involved in these litigations. Brilliant lawyers are there, young lawyers are there who are now working. A lot of them are working with me, empathize with the cases. I I think more people from all these you know uh, sexy national law schools should get involved in this process and fight people for fight for people whose citizenship uh, is uh, under under challenge or um, got terminated. Uh, yeah. You're listening to Aman Vadud on the Nagrik podcast. Given the very large number of people whose citizenship is being questioned in Assam's foreigners tribunals, Aman and his colleagues established the Justice and Liberty Institute. Uh, uh, uh 2019 uh, 1st of September one day after NRC was published, I went to my native place uh, because I was getting a lot of call. A lot of people uh, uh, were excluded from the list. So my friends organized three meetings so that I can interact with people because I was involved with the entire NRC process since 2015 when application process started. And uh, so I went there uh, uh, and met people and because they all knew me uh, uh, so they came hold my shoulder uh, someone patted in my back uh, and said that you know you came now we were very worried since yesterday now that you are here uh, we don't worry you will take care of our case most of the people i, I made some uh, 500 people that day in three meetings most of them came up to me and said the same thing we don't worry now because you are there and that really shook me uh, while I was driving back, I was thinking, what is this? I mean, you know, so many people and there are like 5,000 people excluded in my, you know, extended neighborhoods in some 10 kilometer radius. And most of the people knows me and most of the people will be uh, relying on me to fight their cases. Uh, and I thought that, you know, by then we, we, we had, I and my, my senior colleague were fighting cases. And we thought that we both cannot fight, fight these cases anymore. So then I, um, we founded an organization called Justice and Liberty Initiative. Uh, and uh, then slowly and steadily we came together, we, we got an office. And my we have six lawyers now uh, who are working together. We do our individual cases, but uh, also... You know, fighting FT cases. Uh, all six lawyers have their individual cases, but because we are in a chamber right now, we have our own space to work. Uh, so around 500 cases right now, 
this includes high court tribunal foreigners tribunal and supreme court a lot of cases in the supreme court um, there are people who are doing pro bono cases like uh, talha bhaiya talha abdul rahman uh, and they are helping me in, 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 in supreme court cases uh, so um, yeah around 500 cases now uh, so the, i i keep telling this to everyone that you know uh, i i my practice got affected because i i am fighting so many ft cases and it takes lots of time and despite that in the last seven years i could my score is not about 500 and we are here talking about millions of people lakhs of people who are who have been excluded shuddered the thought you know that how if this nrc list get uh, you know if the people who have been excluded get the notice if they start appealing before the foreigners tribunal how will we fight their cases because by now people know me they have started knowing me they have started a lot of people have started relying on me and i will get i'll be flooded with calls to fight their cases that's what i was talking to one of my friend the other day that you know uh, we were planning uh, to come up with a law firm also so that our uh, uh, you know we can sustain ourselves but i i told him that you know we will have tough time and uh, whatever it may be but we are determined that uh, whatever whatever it comes we need to defend people as many people as possible uh, we need to train up lawyers who can take up these cases mm, uh, so th there are other plans because even if we do not get uh, uh, involved in the case directly but we need to find a way that people's rights are defended that cases that their citizenship is defended in uh, you know by competent lawyers so that's why we, we have to come up with innovative way even if we do not get involved in personal capacity yeah. very briefly how what do you describe are the qualities for a lawyer who is going to defend someone's citizenship uh it is very embarrassing that lawyers most of the lawyers uh you know who are fighting ft cases are not very competent it is very difficult to find a competent lawyer uh they can't draft the written statement well at times they don't most of the time they put they don't put date of the birth parents name this is an ex document but you know written statement mm, uh, should be a brief description about you uh, which they don't do it uh, there is an extensive procedure because there are it is all about uh, ft cases citizenship cases all about documentation uh, a major part of it uh, is 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 on evidence law they have no idea what evidence law so a lawyer should know the basic basic thing how a trial is conducted what is the the basic principle of evidence law whatever relevant section is applicable they should know about it but sadly they don't know and uh, there are other cases you know one of the problem to access to counsel is uh, this this most of these tribunals are uh, you know scattered around in small places uh, it should have been in the district district uh, headquarter this was done to i don't know it was a conspiracy or what but this was done to take justice to people at that doorstep but it is uh, not helping because lawyers cannot travel to far flung areas to fight cases you know if they go uh, even if they if, if they attend a tribunal one day they will miss all other cases which is in district headquarter and what happens that they charge more from the client because they are they are sacrificing their entire day's work 
this is not helping the client the client can come to the district uh, district headquarters that, that will cost them even less right they can travel that whatever 10 to 12 20 50 100 kilometers but uh, you know i will prefer rather travel going uh, you know even if like from kamrup rural to um, guwahati 80 80 90 kilometers i will even i will prefer traveling to this uh, traveling this distance rather than uh, you know lawyers going to those areas and fighting cases because then it will be more expensive for them people who charges this uh, these lawyers uh, these clients lawyers who charges the client it is not helping so these are the major problem you know one is competency of the most of the lawyers um, senior lawyer don't want to go, go there and the distance is a problem and because the tribunal has become so arbitrary and uh, there are tribunals which do not declare Indi uh, people as Indian citizen. So it also becomes embarrassing for senior lawyer to go and attend because th they have this guilt feeling. But what I believe is that, uh, you know, your job is to give your best, give the best fight. Uh, so I think the senior, so senior lawyer who are well versed with uh, nitty gritties of the, of, 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 of uh, you know, evidence law, civil law, and the citizenship laws, they should appear before these tribunals. Finally, Aman, tell me what you're doing in Texas. I uh, got, I applied for Fulbright and I got it. I was a little surprised and uh, I was, uh, I was a little confused what to do because uh, my first love is my work. But by then I had a team and that helped me in deciding that I should, uh, avail my Fulbright Fellowship and I am here in University of at the University of Texas uh, School of Law um, and I'm, I'm you know for my LLM uh, and my concentration is human rights law and comparative constitutional law uh, I'm a part of the immigration clinic here I also appeared before immigration court and we got one detainee from Haiti released uh, Haiti Haitian woman released um, and things for me it is it was very easy here um, because the tribe the, 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 the immigration judge was very uh, compassionate uh, you know she believed in the testimony of our client and the, the process to get released from detention is very easier here people get outraged when people are detained here for days uh, and we are I am dealing with cases for months and years together uh, so, yeah, that is what I am doing here in the last year. Thank you so much for speaking to the Nagrik Podcast, Amit. It was such a pleasure speaking to you.